Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. This episode, we are joined by Don Myricks, Deputy Director for Science and Technology at the Central Intelligence Agency, where she has served for over seven years. Prior to this role, Dawn served as the Assistant Director of National Intelligence for Acquisition, Technology, and Facilities at ODNI. Before joining the intelligence community, Dawn worked in commercial industry as the Senior Vice President for Product Technology at AOL. Additionally, Dawn has served as the Chief Technology Officer at the Defense Information Systems Agency, commonly known as DISA. Hi, Dawn. Thanks for joining us today. We are so happy to have you here. Hi, Megan. I'm delighted to be here, and I'm actually flattered that you all thought of me to do this, but uh, I'm a big fan of AWIC, so this seemed like a really exciting thing to do for me. Well, this is your second time, not with us on the podcast, but with us at AWIC. And we are happy every single time and feel honored (laughs) every time you join us. So thank you. Thank you. So, you know, I've heard you describe yourself as a late career hire in the intelligence community. Um, Could you share a bit about your journey to becoming the Deputy Director for Science and Technology at CIA? Uh, Absolutely. If somebody had told me when I graduated, um, I won't say how many years ago, that I would end up at the CIA, I would have said, there's no way. It wasn't even a gleam in my eye. So um, I graduated with a a bachelor's in computer science and moved about as far away from Pittsburgh as you can get. I went to Los Angeles. (laughs) Wow, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I wanted to be someplace where it was always warm and I could get to the beach and ski um, easily. So, you know, when you're 21, that that's, sounds like a place you want to be. So um, I went to work for TRW, and I actually put in a network for an Air Force base where bend radius, this is how old I am, was, was actually measured in feet because it was big copper. It was about, you know, three inch in diameter copper that was actually being used for local area networks at that point. Um, then spent a, a little bit of time. I got my master's in computer science and went to the Jet Propulsion Labs, which was a great place to be a, a young engineer. Um, Working with NASA rocket scientists is uh, just fabulous. And through a series of programs, ended up coming to um, the Washington area, worked for the Army. Uh, You talked about that. And then for DISA, um, where I actually finally joined the government, I had been an IPA, but I I worked for an admiral that said, well, well, instead of complaining about the government, why don't you come on in and do something about it? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which I thought was a pretty good challenge for me. And... uh, Work then ended up becoming um, the CTO for DISA, among other things. I built command and control, Commodore operating pictures when those weren't the thing to do. Um, it was a lot of fun. I got to spend a lot of time out in the field uh, with the military working on those things and um, ended up getting the first milestone A ever granted by the Department of Defense for a major system acquisition. That was, um, 
I needed a break after that, I'll just say. <laughs> and being first is, is, is the scenery changes, but boy, you are breaking snow. So bad analogy, but it was a tough thing. And so I ended up running product technology at AOL. I had done some work um, with the, the guy who led the organization at the time, because I also did the first ever enterprise buy for DoD, the Netscape browser, back when browsers weren't free. Wow. Um, so yeah, so we could get a PKI certificate uh, server capability because that's we were just starting to, to need certificates back in those days. So I'd gotten to know the AOL folks very well because they bought Netscape. And so I went to work for AOL, worked there a couple of years um, and uh, did a bunch of layoffs, unfortunately. Um, took a bit of a break uh -huh. and uh, then ended up back in government. I had done some work with... Uh, Admiral Denny Blair, when he was uh, president of IDA, and when he became the DNI, he called me and asked me to run acquisition because he, he, I had done work also with him at Paycom, and he had noticed that I consistently delivered systems that worked for him. So that's how I ended up in the community. And then I'll just say my predecessor in this job, uh, Glenn Gaffney, recruited me. He was also in the DNI when I was there. We were peers. And uh, he used to come in and, and just swap stories and we just hit it off. And he said, well, you're a CIA employee. You just don't know it yet. Um, so <laughs> when, he went back, when he went back to CIA, he called me and asked if I could would consider interviewing to be his deputy. And I said, don't tease me. You know, I didn't grow up there. There's no way they're going to bring me in at that level um, because, you know, I was a long way through my career at that point. Very unusual in terms of what uh, the agency generally thinks about hiring. But I went for an interview with uh, Mike Morell and John Brennan and I, they offered me the job. So I, I took it and I've never looked back. And, and I guess what I'll say, my career is relatively for my peer group, relatively unusual in that I changed jobs a lot, but it was always about doing amazing things with great teams. And so that was kind of my pursuit. Um, I wanted to be a continuous learner and I wanted to have the opportunity to, to work new and different problems, fresh problems all the time. And what I found in most places is once they track you, then it's really hard to break out of however they've labeled you. And the only way I knew to do that was to create my own path so that every place I went, it was, it's hard in one sense and that you're starting over and you know, right. to kind of prove yourself. But on the other hand, you're not immediately pigeonholed. And because at this point in my career, I'm so different from everybody else that it's very hard to categorize me into something. So it gives me lots of opportunity, I think, to bring different facets of things that I enjoy to a whole variety of um, challenges. And it, it also then means, because I, I don't know if I bore easily, but I go, I, I get to move across a whole bunch of different things and work with a whole bunch of different people and deliver great capability with people that I really respect and admire. So that's, that's my career. And that's, that's why I was so late. <laughs> what, no, but that's a great story, especially for new up and comers coming into, you know, the IC, know, knowing that it's okay not to have this conventional path or that you can jump around. I was, I also jumped around a lot and you know, it took very special bosses or special yeah. leaders to recognize that that was a positive and not a negative. So I think it's good for our young professionals coming into the IC to hear that, you know, you were able to do it successfully and you love doing it that way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think you're right. There's a lot. I owe a lot of credit to um, mentors and supervisors that were open to somebody who didn't look and didn't follow the path that everybody else did, because it, it is extra work. I mean, even if you're a great employee, which I like to believe I was, um, it is extra work to try and figure out how you apply that person and how they're going to react and how, what they will do with and to the team. So 
um, it does take uh, real leadership to agree to do things like that, I think. So, you know, with this unconventional path into the IC, you're our first guest that we've had that had a late career hire experience. How did you benefit professionally from this decision? And how do you feel that it set you back or did it set you back at all? Um, so let me start with, I have the best job on the planet for me. And I feel so fortunate to have found this organization and, and had the opportunity to serve um, where I do, that it, it has been just, Glenn was absolutely right. It fit me like a glove and it's been absolutely wonderful. It has stretched me, you know, I don't know if other people's careers, if they get to the point where they're not being stretched, but this has stretched me in ways I never imagined. Um, and since I love to learn, that's a good thing and challenged me in ways that I never imagined. Um, so I am never bored. Uh, and I think probably that's, you know, that may be one of the reasons I changed jobs. It was like, oh, I think I've got this now and they want me to keep doing more of the same. So I'm not so interested anymore. Mm -hmm. um, never happens in this job. And instead, I think what I was able to do that they value, and I still get the, you're not from around here look, or sometimes people just say, it's clear you didn't grow up here. Um, but I think what's so neat about that is uh, they're willing to listen. I've earned my way in mm -hmm. so that I can bring things like industry experience or, you know, have we thought about approaching it this way? Because it's something that I've seen work for, you know, technologists in a different part of the government. And so I think it brings a breadth of experience and uh, willingness to have many, many conversations and work through the, how could we adapt that? How could we make it fit here? Um, because I, I see the potential, I'm a problem solver. So I see the potential for how to take some of these things and some of these relationships that I formed and bring them to bear on our toughest intelligence challenges. No one could have created a job more perfect than this for me. I, 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 Every day I walk in, I think, wow, I get to do this. So that's really fun. That's awesome. I, I heard someone once say about a job that they really loved that, hey, you know, I'd pay them to do this. That's how much I love it. <laughs> that's what it sounds like you're describing to me now. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I want my boss to hear me say that. but <laughs> Of course, I won't let, yeah, well, you don't have to say that. I get it. <laughs> The three-letter agencies are often thought of as large, bureaucratic, and unfriendly to all types of creativity. Tell us a little bit about how you've brought a spirit of innovation to the Directorate of Science and Technology, commonly known as DSNT. How have you overcome some of those cultural, organizational, and process challenges there? So I have to start with saying that the place was very innovative and creative when I got there. So I can't say that I you know, caused innovation or creativity. I think um, the culture is one of very creative folks with deep expertise that are used to going up against really, really interesting problems and doing the things that um, people say can't be done. I mean, that's, if you tell us, oh, you can't do that, you know, then it's like, oh, that's the go, right? We're gonna go figure it out. What I will say is that I think I brought some different ways about thinking about how you introduce innovation and how you create an environment that will embrace creativity as opposed to try to stamp it down that we've been working on since I've been in the organization that I think are uh, starting to bear fruit. And there are a number of those that, you know, I'm really excited about. I, CIA Labs is one of those things that I'm really excited about that I know we're going to spend a little, hopefully we'll spend a little bit of time talking about. But we've done other things um, that I think are equally impactful in terms of uh, opening up the relationships between our 
academic institutions, other labs, and the agency, um, leveraging other parts of the community much more closely than we used to in the past. I think we have great partnerships with some of the sister organizations that have gotten really, really close and that we're, where we actually use each other to be innovative kind of back and forth, right? Like you carry the load for a while and we'll go operate and, and then, you know, we'll mm -hmm. step back into that. So I think we've evolved not so much a difference in the culture, but the way we're willing to partner that has provided long-term benefits to our folks who are the innovators and creators and give them more opportunities to do that as opposed to just cranking through more of the same. And that's really, I tell people that if somebody else could do it, they should, that mm. we shouldn't. We should only do those things that nobody else can do. So um, new ways to do that, or we're always looking for new ways to partner in order to accomplish that. And that's, that's just in any government agency, no matter how good they are, that's just being persistent. And so um, I, I'm also very persistent. <laughs> I love that. So you so you mentioned CIA Labs, which was announced in September. I have actually heard you speak about it with such passion. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that project and why it's so important to you. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a storyteller, so I'll tell a story. So one of the um, best battery folks in the country worked with us, worked with the agency, and we wanted him to actually come in um, to become an employee. And at the time he had 60, I think it was 64 patents and part of the calculus. So he was a, you know, mid career hire. Part of the calculus was there was no way for him to, he had to give up patenting his IP to come into the organization because there was no way for us to do that. We didn't have a methodology to do it. We could do secret patents, but those are really, I mean, they're, I almost think they're not real patents because they don't get published. They can't, you know, you can't like license them. Mm -hmm. It goes into the same place the Ark of the Covenant does, right? Which is like, <laughs> you can check in any time you like, but you can never leave kind of stuff. So um, that really struck me when I got there. And I had just my, my previous job, I had been consulting. But before that, I was at AOL. And you would often walk into the, the top engineers and scientists offices and their, their walls would be covered with patents. And so it was just kind of a way of, you know, a nice way to recognize the employee and kind of, you know, kind of bona fides kind of stuff. And so I was really troubled by this individual's, um, the conversation I had with him that he had, this had to be part of his calculus. So that was part of what motivated me was, okay, so our folks are really creative and innovative and we ought to at least be able to get them patents, right? And then there's this whole under, undertapped um, resource in academia and the other national labs that it's, it's still very cumbersome with the processes we had to do business with, right? And we would work through a lot of that. And of course we do lots of business with some of the other national labs, but it felt like it wasn't anywhere close to the speed of business. So the CIA labs is a, is a federal laboratory and in-house research and, and development arm for CIA. And it's, we, we administer it for all of the agency, but what it allows us to do is it gives us a, a number of vehicles, creators and other things that make it easy to do business with academia and other labs. It gives us an easy ability to do internships and externships. Um, so for example, we have a very long hiring process. And mm -hmm. so what we can do, it's just the nature of the beast, right? But what we can do is put people under like term contract right at their university with the idea that if we know we want to hire you, but you haven't gotten the whole way through, you know, the process yet, we can put you to work right away, paying you the same way we would leave you where you are. So we're not making you move only to tell you that, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you washed out because of something. Um, 
So that was really important. And then perhaps one of the best pieces is that our folks can actually hold patents through this as well. And I think what's so cool about that is that um, we have, we only launched in July, we have three um, conditional patents already. Um, the first one went to this gentleman that had to make this decision, not, you know, that he was going to give that capability up. So I'm really pleased that that worked out. And the cool thing is that they can get up to 15% of the licensing revenues associated with the patent if it's licensed, which is up to $150,000 a year. And the other 85% is actually comes back to the organization that files on their behalf. So my, my goal is that it would be great not only to recognize our folks with their patents, but that eventually our R&D budget, which is small, might uh -huh. be totally funded by licensing revenues associated with all the creativity that the organization sparks. So um, I am incredibly jazzed about it. You can do things like, so for example, our, our analytic team, if they need an expert, um, we can actually post kind of the, to a group of 300 plus academic institutions. We're looking for, you know, the world's best expert on quantum or whatever it is and have people come back and say, oh, that would be me, or, you know, I, I know who that person is. And it's literally that easy to find out, you know, like, so if you wanna to put together a, a study team for a half a day, we can get the names of the people that we need, then use these easy contract methods in order to get them in so that, you know, what used to take months and months and months and lots of research, we can actually turn into a, you know, a couple of day, a couple of month process, depending on how niche your particular thing is. but. Um, there's just, there's all sorts. And, and by the way, we have, we have brought in, I think our third person now on this, I'll call it term contract basis so that we can get them in fast with the idea. And we've converted the first one that we brought in on the term contract basis into a full-time um, employee now. So it just really helps us compete for top talent because there's a lot of, as you know, engineer mm -hmm. scientists, there's a lot of competition. Um, the GS pay scale at the low end of the scale isn't that great. We have the GS engineering scale, but it's still relatively modest compared to what we're competing with. But if we can take that long lead time out, then we can bring people in much more quickly and uh, give them real work to do kind of right out of the blocks, which makes us at least as competitive with the industry. Well, that's what I was going to say, that this this is great. I mean, this is really cool. And I think that's been such a problem, right, is the competition with industry. And you coming from industry understand that. How can we first get them and then retain them um, in government? And um, and so this is really cool. I really look forward to seeing where else this goes. Thanks for sharing yeah. that. Sure. No, it's my pleasure. I'm, I am. You can tell I'm really excited about it. I see only upside in terms of what we can do with this. So great stuff. Awesome. So I can imagine that when you push the boundaries of the possible, uh, failure is inevitable. How have you worked to create a culture that is friendly to taking risks, making mistakes, or failure? That's a great question. Let me start with the agency's job is to take risks, right? You, you don't do this mission mm -hmm. if you think it can be risk-free. So that's another where the culture is already biased to take risks. Having said all that, there's a usually significant repercussions if we do fail, right? Because it's usually some, you know, huge implosion of some sort that's really hard to, I mean, there's the, the, the history of the CIA is littered with, you know, kind of um, public response to, to failures that come out. So I think uh, having said all of that, we have ombuds and things like that. We've instituted processes so that we move fast, we move smartly, but if people feel like we're going too fast or we're doing things that aren't smart, that they have a relief valve, right? 
So um, our ombuds was actually created in response to a series of, uh, I'll say, you know, failures of one sort or another, um, because like most organizations, it, there's a pendulum, right? And so after, after there's a failure of some sort, then everybody's very, tends to be very introspective and they're, you know, much less willing to take some risk and you kind of grow back into it. And we had seen a number of, I'll say, um, indicators that maybe we weren't uh, thinking through carefully enough the implications of last minute requirements changes or, you know, all the things, all the pressures that you get when you're trying to operationalize complex technology. So we created this ombuds office where people who were concerned about that could actually raise it, but not have it be in their chain of command so that it wasn't like I'm telling my boss, you mm -hmm. know, my boss isn't listening to me, so I have to wrap my boss out. Um, so that's been really effective. And then what we did was also really overhaul our red teaming uh, approach. So we mm -hmm. created recently um, a senior technical service, which they basically, that team came together and said, we want this, we wanna recognize senior experts. And so part of the requirement to be part of that senior technical service, besides selection by a board of peers, is that you agree to do corporate give back. And part of that corporate give back is you must help serve on these red teams in areas where you can contribute. One of the things I think is so cool about the job that I get to do in the organization I get to be a part of is we do everything from mascara to space. So you can get this whole panoply of expertise to look at not just the results of other people's work, but also if, if you need to go to a whiteboard and say, here's this crazy hard problem, we have no idea how to go after it, right? We can bring in um, optics experts, quantum experts, you know, uh, machining experts. It's unbelievable. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still discovering things after seven years from a um, discipline perspective that I didn't even know we had experts in, right? And the, the thing that I love as a lifelong learner about that is I get to ask the, the world's experts how stuff works. Mm -hmm. And they are able to explain it because they are just that good. But put them in a room and on a hard problem or a, you know, a hard review, and it's just magical. It's, it's so, I think we, we do take risks. We have to take risks. And when we fail, we fail and review it. And we're, um, we learn from it. And we try really, really hard not to overreact to those failures, because that is another good way to, to tell people to act differently than you speak, right? Because we tell people, hey, what we want to do is fail fast, learn and move on. Um, so you've got you've to be very careful about, you know, when there is a failure that, that you own it that you address it um, and that you own it at whatever scale it failed, right? So if it's a big public failure, then you gotta own it kind of big in public. If it's a smaller failure, then you gotta own it kind of in that group. But if you just ignore it or you try to sweep it under the rug, um, that breeds bad behavior. And if you overreact, right? If you are punitive about it, then that also breeds bad behavior because then people will be very reticent to try and go for the big crazy. Um, and a lot of what we do, you know, we have an aircraft out in our parking lot that was the big crazy at the time, right? <laughs> so we have a long history of doing big crazy um, and we need people to be willing to take on those kinds of things. And we do it, I, I'll say we do it regularly and it's, it's just an amazing organization. I can see what you mean by the by never being bored. I mean, getting all of the world's experts in to to talk about a problem. I I mean, that does sound like the perfect job. That that's really cool. It is. It is. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about mentorship, uh, a topic that's really important to both of us. One thing that you and our listeners might not know about AWIC 
is that we started as a reverse mentoring group mm. um, where senior women could learn from those just starting out in the community. So how have you brought this concept to DSNT and how has it been successful? Um, <laughs> that's another great question. So I have a reverse mentor, I think, let's see, I have three right now, um, various because they're, uh, people get field assignments or, you know, we are doing distributed work and things like that. So I have three right now. I'm always looking for reverse mentors. They are invaluable. I talked to one today, in fact, in terms of telling me where the organization really is at my level, very often I will hear um, what people want me to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, even though I, I try not to overreact, right? It's like, hey, I'm not gonna take on your problems for you, you work those. Um, but it just it just becomes true, right? Uh, that people are more inclined to tell the boss what they think she wants to hear and maybe not what she needs to hear. And so I really use um, those relationships to get, so tell me what you're hearing, right? Um, how well are we really doing with managing the pandemic? Do you have the flexibility that you need? Are you getting enough information to make good decisions? You know, how far behind, how much guilt are you carrying about, you know, work that's not being done or whatever the thing is, right? Because if they're feeling that, then the chances are the rest of the population is feeling that. So I think it's absolutely essential to have reverse mentors the higher you go in an organization because otherwise you, you totally lose track. And I'll be honest and say, we had a really good and tough conversation this afternoon with respect to some communications challenges that we've been having in, and it's not related to COVID, but it's like the normal business of the, hey, you guys didn't get out the, you know, the field call, the time we normally do. And we need that time in order to prepare to take our family to the field, right? It was, they don't pull punches. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was, it was a really good conversation. And then I'll also take it from the other side, which is I've had mentors invest in me throughout my career. And to your point, and I think that's one, something that we have in common when you change jobs I, I found that you know besides your boss it's really important to find somebody um kind of outside of the organization that knows that organization maybe but not in your chain of command particularly as you get more senior so that, that there's there's a safety valve so you can say hey you know i'm noticing this about the you know the group is you know, how has this worked for you in the past? Or is this just this group? Or is it just something in the culture that I don't understand? So I've had a bunch of people be really, really grateful and graceful with their time in terms of my professional career and really invested in me. And, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. So I feel really compelled to also then be a mentor as well. And that's, um, you know, I have an open door policy. My calendar is terrible, but I do try to maintain regular discussions with my reverse mentors in particular, but really other folks that I've gotten to know over the course of the time that I've been there that I'm always happy, you know, we'll set up coffees kind of notorious for let's go have coffee. And that's just a, a check-in, like, how you doing? How's work? You know, how's your family? Whatever, you know, just to connect as people. And even in COVID, we've been managing to maintain coffees. So we just sit six feet apart. Right. <laughs> or sit outside. Who sit outside. Or sit outside, right? Exactly. Right. Yep. Well, I've known quite a few people that have been introduced to you or asked, you know, to speak with you about some type of mentoring. And I don't know one person that hasn't been able to sit down with you. You've been very generous with your time. Thank you for that. Thank you for being a leader that that does give back and mentor to the community. I love it. I always learn more than than um, I think I than I provide. So uh, it's it's 
I'm, I'm glad people haven't figured that out yet, but um, I'm very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy to learn from what other people are thinking and what they're doing. So if you could leave our listeners with one message about leadership, what would you say? So I'm a big proponent of servant leadership. I feel like the higher you go, the more people you're serving. Because at this point in my career, if I'm making technical decisions, we're in a really bad place. I, it's been a long time since I was in school. It's a long time since I wrote code or used a soldering iron or designed a circuit. Um, and the technology continues to move apace. Now I, I try to keep up with it, but there's a difference, as we all know, if you're a practicing engineer between what the book says and what actually works when you actually go to build something. I hope smart enough to realize that what, uh, what head understanding I have now does not replace the the on the ground work that my actual engineers and scientists who still build things for a living do. So you don't want me to be making technical decisions, right? So I always feel like my job is to clear the playing field so that those engineers and scientists that are still really doing the work are getting everything that they need, are bringing them their entire selves to work, that they're getting technical expertise if they need it, whatever the thing is, support for this crazy idea that, you know, doesn't fit into a program of record, whatever that is. Um, I feel that's my job. And that's really taking an attitude that I'm there to serve the workforce. They're not there to serve me. And if I take care of my workforce, they will make mission happen every day. So that's, um, that's how I feel about, and it doesn't mean you're a it also doesn't mean because people say to me, well, that means you just lay down for everybody. No, no, no. I can also be, you know, the, the, the lion that says, we're not doing that. And here's mm -hmm. why, right? Um, it's, it's all about taking care of my folks and protecting their equities in service of mission. You know, service can look like sometimes teeth and nails, as they say. Um, I try not to use those very often because then, then you've got to repair that relationship over time. But um, I, I am a big believer in servant leadership and thinking about whatever your workforce is, that you're there to serve them so that they can be successful. I couldn't agree more. Um, I love that answer. So we end each episode with the same question. I've often been told this is the most difficult question. And in keeping with the name of the podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? Yeah, so I love this question. I really, really like it. I kind of like the Iron Butterfly thing too. So I'm a master gardener. Oh. I decided that I wanted my answer to be a heritage oak. Oh, and wow. And here's why. Um, for, for gardeners, they say that, you know, the great white oaks, the heritage oaks, spend 200 years um, growing, 200 years living, and 200 years dying. And so having that kind of, you know, impact. The other thing about the oak is that it is the most nutritious in every sense of the word tree in the ecosystem here on the eastern coast right so i don't know if people know doug tallamy's work um but he actually rates trees and plants in terms of how many forms of life they actually foster and the oak leads by wide margins everything else in the forest so as i was thinking about that it was like wow um and my husband and i I, you know, I would like to have an, an impact to be nurturing, to provide that shelter. And my husband and I have planted a couple that we hope in 500 years, somebody's sitting under one of them saying, wow, I'm really glad somebody put this into the ground or, you know, that a squirrel planted it. Who knows? It might be in a forest by then. But, um, you know, having that kind of um, legacy impact and being nurturing 
at the same time throughout the life cycle, I think is uh, what I would like to be remembered for. That is such a thoughtful answer. And I, I love it. Thank you. That's a, that's a great code name. Um, <laughs> so Don, thank you so, so much for joining us today. It has been really fun. I learned a little something about you. Um, you know, we just thank you for your time. We thank you for your service and your leadership and your mentorship. And um, I hope you had a little fun with us today. Had a great time, Megan. Thank you so much. Thanks for everybody who puts this podcast together. Um, I can't wait to listen to the other episodes. Not mine, but uh, (laughs) look forward to it. And thanks for doing this for the community. I think it's just a really important thing um, for us to take care of each other, particularly in times like this. And this is one way to do that. So thank you. Well, thanks. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the Amazing Women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.